Pray with me, please. Now, Father, we have confessed in worship the greatness of the coming of your Son. So now as we turn our attention to your word, may by the work of your spirit you do a transforming work in our hearts that we would see with new eyes and with renewed passions the great love for us that is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Turn in your copy of the Scriptures, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. What is love? It is a question that has fascinated humanity down the centuries. The poets have endeavored to capture it in their words, to hold it in their hands and to shape it with their pens. So writes Elizabeth Browning, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) Or William Shakespeare. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although its height be taken. How many volumes could be filled with the lyrics of songwriters, or how many libraries could be filled with all of the novels that have been written to express the great love stories of history and imagination? And yet for all of that, for all of our preoccupation and fascination and in fact obsession with love, there is in fact little that our world has more fundamentally misunderstood than the nature of true love. And there is also little that our world degrades and trivializes more than love. Today in our world the term love is a pretty cheap thing. It's a flippant word that we throw around when we see clothes that we like, or in describing perhaps a favorite food that we enjoy, or even a word that we might use in the context of a relationship that deep down we know is unlikely to last. We use a word like love to describe the fleeting whimsies of our fancies. We use love to describe what we intend later to thoughtlessly discard. And in that, we reveal that our conception of love becomes merely an expression of our own selfishness. That I say that I love something or that I love someone because of how it or they make me feel or satisfy my desires. And when that person or that thing stops satisfying me or meeting my felt needs, then it is time for me to move on to something or to someone else that will. You see, that kind of self-centered, self-seeking, transactional view of love is precisely what our confused world is pursuing and selling. But it's a grotesque fraud. It is counterfeit love. The coming of Jesus Christ, Advent, upends and confounds 
our world's understanding of the nature of true love. As we look upon a newborn baby lying in a manger and we realize that this child is in fact God the eternal Son, then we begin to understand that we have never known a love like this. I've appreciated over the last few weeks hearing Pastor Tim and Pastor Kelly and Pastor West as they have unpacked for us the themes of Advent. And so this morning, we consider love as the final theme of Advent. And as we do so, I invite you to come with me and to look upon a miracle and a mystery that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're going to begin in just a moment in our text in John chapter 3. Jesus here is speaking to a man named Nicodemus, a religious leader who is meeting Jesus in secret, afraid that his fascination in Jesus will cost him something of his position in society. And Jesus is here expounding in a one-on-one personal sermon with Nicodemus the greatness of the ministry for which Christ himself has come. He is revealing to Nicodemus his own mission. So turn your attention with me, if you would, to John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I remember trips where I have at times been out west and having my breath taken away by the sight of the mountains in the morning. The sun striking the peaks that seem to rise so impossibly high. The solidity and strength and immovability of the rock. The overwhelming scale of the cliffs that seem to just tower up so high. The way that the light plays off of and refracts off of the craggy faces of the towering rock formations. It's stunning. It is, in fact, worship-inspiring. And you want to grab the people who live there and who are just walking by as if there is nothing to see and to grab them and shake them by their shoulders and to point them toward the mountains and say, look, can't you see that? How can you possibly just walk by on a morning like this? How can you not stop and stare at what God is doing right in front of you? Those people know that the mountains are there. And they also know that the mountains are stunning and beautiful. In fact, it's why many of them have chosen to live in those places. But because they see it every day, because they walk by it every day, they begin subtly, to lose something of the wonder and the amazement in it. John 3.16 is a mountain peak with the sun rising directly behind it on the clearest sky that you have ever seen kind of text in the Scripture. 
It is perhaps the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Text known and memorized by many of you since you were very young. And it is breathtaking in its stunning beauty and grandeur. And it is also an intimidating text to preach for two reasons. First, because the truth that it reveals is so awe-inspiring that any sermon will necessarily be woefully inadequate to the task, including this one, most especially this one. And second, because so many are so familiar with it that we have forgotten how to stop and stare in wonder at it. But if we would understand something of the love of God that is revealed in this child in a manger in Bethlehem, I would suggest to you that there is no better text for us this morning. The outline of this sermon is going to be very, very simple. Two thoughts that come from this text. Number one, we have no right to expect God's love. For God so loved the world. The world would have us to think that being loved is our right, that you and I are good people, in fact, better than good, that each one of us is perfect just the way that we are. In fact, our world today would say that one of the greatest evils in our society is the danger that is posed to us by low self-esteem. That what ails us most is that we, in fact, have too low an opinion of ourselves. That what we really need most is more self-love and self-care and self-acceptance. And moreover, it is therefore the responsibility of every good member of society to unconditionally love and affirm every part of who we are and what we do. Our whole culture today is built around this notion that human beings are essentially good. Good, of course, meaning whatever it is that you want it to mean. And that love means unquestioning affirmation. In fact, affirmation and love in our society have become one and the same thing. To love someone is not merely to tolerate someone. It is to unconditionally affirm all that they are, all that they desire, all that they do. You cannot love someone in our world today unless you unconditionally affirm them. And our society believes that personal wellness and wholeness depend upon maintaining an internal positive psychological sense of ourselves, thus the danger of low self-esteem. The Bible, however, presents to us a radically different picture regarding the true condition of our humanity. Not that we are inherently good and therefore deserving of God's unconditional affirmation. But instead that by nature, we are wicked people who desire evil things and who therefore rightly and justly deserve God's judgment. We often forget what comes immediately after John 3.16. You hear a lot of people, they're able to quote, for God so loved the world. But the context in which that love actually shines out the brightest is revealed in what Jesus goes on to say next, which conveniently we most often forget. But in verse 19, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So according to Jesus, here is the problem with each one of us. First, we have loved the wrong things in the wrong ways. You know how in the summer you turn on your porch light at night, and within just a couple of moments, all kinds of moths and other flying insects just emerge from the darkness and are flitting all around the light. They are attracted to it. They are drawn to it. They come out of the darkness to be in the presence of the light. But Jesus says that morally speaking, human beings have the exact opposite response. We are not attracted to the light of truth and goodness. We recoil from it. It's like being in a dark room when someone throws on the light switch before everyone's eyes are ready to be adjusted to the light. And you recoil from the light, you cover your eyes, you draw back from it, and usually you yell at whoever just turned the light, please turn that back off. You're not ready for it. You're not prepared for it. Well, in this metaphor that Jesus is using of the light, the light is truth and goodness and the revelation of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and darkness is wickedness and evil and sin. And it's not just, in fact, a matter of the fact that we aren't prepared to be accustomed to the light or that we will recoil from the light. It's actually worse than that. The problem is that people love darkness. We delight in it. We want it. We pursue it. We revel in it. Apart from God, we love the darkness. Love it. And correspondingly, we hate the light. Hate it. Why? Because the light of truth exposes and threatens the wicked, evil, and sinful desires of our hearts that we have loved most. You see, we have loved the wrong things in the wrong ways, which means that the second problem for us is that we have defied the God who made us and become His enemies. Rejecting goodness and truth means necessarily that we have rejected and rebelled against the God who is goodness and truth. When we speak of goodness and truth, we are not speaking of things that exist independent and outside of God. Goodness and truth are essential to God's very being. He is goodness and truth. And so mankind's rejection of light and goodness and truth is an outright rejection of God himself. Which means that our hatred of the light is not simply our despising some of God's commands or some of his rules or some of his laws. Children sometimes despise their parents' rules and yet still love their parents. That's not what we're dealing with here. As we read elsewhere, God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. And so our hatred of the light is not simply hating some of God's commands. It is to hate the very person and nature of God himself. And therefore, those who walk in darkness and those who love the darkness are rebels and enemies of the one who made us, which means the third problem for us is that we are, in fact, not lovable, nor do we deserve in any way God's love. No matter what we might think of ourselves, and no matter what our world might try to tell us about ourselves, it turns out that you and I are not bundles of perfection deserving of unconditional love and acceptance. It's not true. 
What are we really apart from God? We are lovers of the darkness. We are people who do and delight in doing wicked things. We are children of wrath. We are sons and daughters of disobedience. Here's the description of your and my unlovable condition apart from the work of God. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others, hating one another. Or take Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I don't know about you, I do not feel like that is a very flattering description. But it is an accurate one. We do not deserve unconditional love and affirmation. We deserve justice. And justice, for those who have made themselves rebels and enemies of the infinite goodness of God, justice for people like you and me is death and wrath and eternal separation and hellfire. So let us understand that we not merely walked in darkness, but that we loved it and we wanted it and we hated the light the whole time. Which means that we hated God Himself. Hated His ways? Yes. Hated His laws and His rules? Yes. Hated others made in His image? Yes. But most of all, we hated God Himself. So if you have nothing else straight in your mind from this sermon to this point, let us at least understand very clearly that we had no right to expect anything from God except the affliction of His just wrath against our evil and wickedness. Now so far, you're probably sitting here thinking that this is kind of a dark and depressing sermon for Christmas Eve. And that's true, you're absolutely right. It has been dark and depressing to this point. That's about to change. Before we can begin to ascend the mountain in order to see great things, we first needed to walk through the valley. Indeed, the mountains stand above us in greater majesty and grandeur when they can be compared to the lowliness of the depth of the valley that we have just traversed in order to get here. Because it is only an understanding that we, in fact, have no right to expect God's love in any way that John 3.16 towers above us in all of its majestic wonder and beauty and majesty. Which leads to the second thought that I'd like to consider with you from our text this morning. The supreme expression of God's love is the giving of the Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The most profound act of love in human history is the incarnation of God the Son. We have a tendency, when we think of God's love for us in Christ, to think most often of the cross. 
And there is an appropriateness in that. The cross is where God's wrath against our sin is supremely satisfied. But we tend in comparison to think little about the love of God for us that is revealed in the incarnation itself, in God becoming man. Think for a moment about the enormity of the thought of God the Son becoming man. In order to understand the magnitude of the miracle of which we are speaking of this child in a manger, we need to pause for a moment and think about God the Son Himself. We must remember the eternality and being of the Son. God the Son existed uncreated in the fellowship of the Godhead before all ages and before all worlds. He never had a beginning. He simply always was. He with the Father and the Spirit joined in the mysterious triunity of the Godhead is I am that I am. No beginning. He is capital B, being. He does not emerge from something. He is not created. Simply always there. We are finite. We are fragile. We are contingent. We are vapor that passes. But not the sun. The sun is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the first. He is the last. He is beginning. He is the end. And we must remember the divine power and majesty of the sun. All knowledge, all power, all wisdom, all existence from him and for him. He is the eternal word, the divine logos through which everything that is sprang into its first existence out of nothing by his power. Every distant planet and star and galaxy was thrown across the distance of the 93 billion light years of known space in an instant by his power. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, made through him and for him every atom and molecule and subatomic piece of particulate matter arranged in its every place in a moment in exact accordance to the perfection of his will. The one who is the divine word spoke the fabric of our bodies together through the framework of DNA, which is itself a language. In our every cell, there are contained three billion letters of this DNA language. Each piece of our DNA shouting the glory of its creator in a language all its own, proclaiming the everlasting glory of God the Son. The strands of DNA in each cell, if strung together end to end, stretch about six feet long in each of your cells. Your body contains 100 trillion cells. So that if you took the strands of DNA and you stacked them end to end to end from all of the cells in your body, they would stretch 110 billion miles. That is a trip to the sun and back six times. And each and every strand of DNA woven in each and every one of the 100 trillion cells in your body and in all of our bodies exists in precise accordance with the infinite wisdom and sustaining power of God the Son. There is no space that can contain the limitlessness of His infinity 
There is no word that can describe the incredible greatness of his nature. Nothing has ever come into its existence or its being apart from his will and his word. And nothing that continues to be continues apart from him willing it to be so and sustaining it by the word of his power. Every law of nature continues because he wills it to be so. Every grain of sand in the Gobi Desert continues to exist because the sun wills it to be so. Every howler monkey in the depths of the Amazon rainforest, every great manta ray in the Great Barrier Reef, every mineral deposit in the far-off canyons of the Martian wilderness that no human eye has ever beheld exists because the sun wills it to be so. And we must remember the wonder and mystery of the triunity of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, co-equal, co-powerful, co-eternal, united together in one divine essence. And that in the persons of the Godhead, there has been perfect love and fellowship for eternity. Divine community of persons existing in the absolute oneness of God. And that every perfection that we know of, love, beauty, goodness, truth, justice, are all bound up in His very being. In fact, those things are not really things at all. They are simply ways of describing in our language the simple reality of the unity of His being and nature. What is my point in all of this? What is my point in elaborating the glory of God the Son and the wonder of the Trinity? My point is this. The incarnation of the Son, that is God becoming man, is a staggering reality that should knock us off our feet. There is no greater miracle has been performed in the history of the world than in God the Son taking on human flesh. There is no wonder of God accomplished in creation that is greater than the event that transpires in Bethlehem in a manger. That God the Son added to Himself humanity so that in His person are perfectly united two natures, divinity and humanity. And that there in the stable, the one who breathed life into Adam's nostrils now has little lungs, the little lungs of a newborn that are filling with air. The one who spoke galaxies into their first existence now cries with the voice of an infant. The one who sustains the universe by the word of his power now lying helpless in his mother's arms. The one who spoke light into the universe now opens little eyes that behold the world that he spoke into being. The one who is infinite and omnipresent and spaceless and timeless in the immensity of his being, now a newborn baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger in Bethlehem. Have we become so familiar with the story of this child in a stable that we have lost our sense of wonder and amazement at the incomprehensible mystery of it all. 
the angels show up shouting in the night sky because the birth of this child requires an explosive response from heaven. As Doug read for us earlier, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with a great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels are unable to contain their praise and worship at what God has done in the birth of Jesus Christ. That what is happening in that stable redounds to the everlasting praise of God. That He is doing something here that is beyond our wildest imagination. And the angels sing and the angels shout the only response that is worthy of this moment. Glory to God in the highest. He is doing something that has never been seen before. The transcendent God condescended to enter into the imminent frame of our humanity. The one with all power and all life and all glory willingly took on the weakness and the frailty of our nature and our body. It defies the ability of our limited minds to understand how such a thing could even be possible, how infinite God and finite man meet in one person. But what is even more astonishing, I think, to consider is that God the Son taking on our humanity was only the beginning of the depths to which His humility was willing to reach in order to save us. Because the express purpose of God the Son taking on our humanity and our nature was so that He could offer Himself as a substitute for our sin in our place. To take on not only our humanity, but in His humanity. To take on our guilt in order to offer to all those who would believe in Him participation in His divine life. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, in your relationships with one another, have this mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so this morning as we consider this babe in a manger, one question should stand out foremost in each one of our minds, and that is this, what kind of of love are we dealing with here? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. God doesn't need us. There is nothing that you and I bring to the table that God does not possess already in Himself. There's not some need or desire in God that He is unable to satisfy if we were not there. Love, fellowship, community, you name it, these all exist in the perfect unity of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and have always existed in Him. Every goodness that we possess, whether individually or collectively, is derived from Him. Everything we have received, we have received from His hand. It belonged to Him first because it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. So let us not flatter ourselves with the thought that perhaps God loved us because of a need that only we could meet. We love in that kind of a selfish way on the basis of how what we love will meet our needs, but not God. God doesn't need anything. Nor does God love us because we loved Him first. Quite the opposite, in fact. Left on our own, we don't love God. We hate His will, we hate His ways, we hate His law, we hate those made in His image, we hate the light, we hate goodness and beauty and holiness. We hate Him. And so we deserve justice and wrath and judgment and condemnation. So why this baby in a manger? Why this unfathomable humbling of God the Son to enter into His creation? And the answer is because we have never known a love like this. A love that was not merited in us. A love that was not reciprocated by us. But a love that came to rescue us anyway. A love that existed on the basis only of who God is in Himself. Love divine, all loves excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling. All thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion. Pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. And this perfect love has existed in the heart of the triune God for you and for me since before the world began. We read that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, meaning that for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that God has loved you from eternity and He will love you to eternity. And the supreme expression of that love, God gave His only Son. As we prepare to celebrate the advent of that love tomorrow in Christmas, I'd like to close by considering briefly with you three applications. Number one, the love of God for us in Christ changes our eternal future. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. How can that truth get old? 
that God loved us enough not to abandon us in our sin and rebellion. Love rightly requires a just response to evil. A love that is detached from justice grows unloving, which only serves to show that our world really has very little understanding of the true nature of love to begin with. But because God is love and justice and truth, then for God to be God, evil and sin and wickedness cannot simply be ignored. He could not be loving and ignore evil which means that all that we should expect from God is judgment and condemnation and death and hell, but what we are offered instead is Jesus. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. In the Old Testament, there's this concept that develops of a kinsman redeemer. That if hardship befell you and your immediate family, that a near relation to you could step in and redeem your family and your property so that either your family or the property would not go out of the family line and be lost. Kinsman Redeemer. All of fallen humanity is in desperate need of that kind of Redeemer. A near relation, someone like us who shares our nature, our humanity, but not our sinfulness. Which is why God the Son came in the flesh to live and to die and then to live again for those of Adam's race. That by virtue of His incarnation, God the Son Himself became our kinsman, Redeemer. A near relation come to save us. And in so doing, Christ changed the eternal future of those who would believe in him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The eternal future of those who believe in Jesus is changed as a result of God so loving the world. So has your future been changed? Have you believed and truly submitted your life and your love to God the Son, who came to free you and redeem you and to rescue you? Do you have standing in the love of God for you in Christ? Or are you still loving the darkness? Number two, this eternity-changing love of God for us in Christ requires in response that our loves be turned right side up and inside out. The love of God for us in Jesus reorders our disordered loves because we have loved, you'll remember, the wrong things in the wrong ways. We loved darkness and hated the light. As sinners, we love and we worship ourselves as the center of our universe. We love self. That is the essence of what it means to love the darkness. But God's transforming love has the power to change broken hearts. We are able now to love God because He first loved us. And in so doing, we will grow, in fact, to hate the darkness and to love the light. God takes our upside-down, broken love, and He turns it right-side up. 
to love what we were created to love in the first place, the God who made us. And in so doing, God also turns our love inside out. Because as we stop loving ourselves and we start loving God, we inevitably begin to love others made in God's image. We can't help it. They are made in the image of the God that we have come to love. Which means that the love of God in Christ that is at work in us has the power to change and transform the relationships that we have broken as a result of our sin. But you won't know any of that life-transforming love if you continue to love the darkness. You must be reborn, born again, as Jesus will tell Nicodemus, which is another way of saying that your love will have to be turned right side up and inside out. New loves, new affections from a new heart that loves God most. And finally, the love of God for us in Christ anchors our identity. This was a personally challenging week for a number of different reasons. If our identity is bound up in superficial things, then when hardship comes or when circumstances arise, then our sense of who we are and what we value becomes compromised. And as a result, we can become unsure and insecure and shaken. But in the middle of what has been a challenging week, I went home on Thursday and I did what I normally do most evenings. I hugged my wife, I played with my kids. Eden happened to turn two on Thursday. And watching her joy that night was the balm that my heart needed. And it reminded me of how love anchors us and grounds us in simple ways in difficult times. And I can think of no greater truth to anchor my identity in than in the fact that God has loved me from eternity past and that He will love me to eternity future. And that His love for me is so great that His love came for me, even when I was the least deserving and when it cost Him the most. That is a truth that is worth living in. That is a foundation worth building an identity for life upon, whatever the circumstances, whatever the trials. No other foundation will ever be as secure as the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch his treasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, renew our vision. We walk by so often grand truths and treat them as common things. And yet, how can we stop from being overwhelmed by the thought that while we were wretches and rebels and enemies, that Christ came for the ungodly? And that by your Son, you have purchased for us a new future, 
and a new hope and given us peace and joy. Father, may our hearts be overwhelmed this Christmas with our understanding of the love that is revealed in the giving of your Son. In Christ's name, amen.